Morning, you step out of bed and into the whitewater raft that is your day. Paddle your guts out and try to miss that big rock. Ouch, never mind. But the river never stops. So wipe off the blood, paddle over to that flat spot on the bank, and we'll get some perspective together. The story's not about you, but if you can learn to see the whole river from Eden to the New Jerusalem, if you can learn to cry at the cross and sing at the empty tomb and trust God through the time in between, you won't just survive. You'll be ready to leave this world a little brighter than you found it. And then we'll get you back on the water. Okay, hello and welcome to episode three of Eden to the City of God. We are now in lesson 1.4 of the curriculum. For those of you following along with the curriculum, if you're following along with your Bible, we are now in Genesis um, chapter two, verse four through 17. And as usual, we have here with us uh, Joe Anderson. I'm Ryan Bramlett, your co-host, Joe Anderson, other co-host. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Joe. How are you? Pretty good. <laughs> it's another beautiful morning here in Inglewood, Colorado. Um, so as we start into chapter two of Genesis, there is a little bit of a, a time shift where we're after the seventh day and God has rested. So Joe, I was wondering if you could just speak into the chronological dislocation here. Why Why are we going back to before God is resting and, and what are we going to be moving into on the sixth day? Yeah. So we have, we have in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 that we talked about in the last episode, God creating man in his image. And it, it, it refers to both male and female, God created them. And now we have in Genesis chapter two, a whole kind of expanded timeline of what's recounted there in in chapter one. And so we have the creation of man and then a little later, the creation of woman. That's all kind of encapsulated in Genesis one, 26 to 28. But now we're really zooming in and getting an in-depth look at that day six specifically. And you'll find people who say, oh, well, there's two accounts of creation and they conflict. Well, there's really no conflicts here between Genesis two and Genesis one. It's really just that zooming in piece. And also the way it begins in the NIV, it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Um, This is a phrase that is repeated. This is the account of, or this is the generations of in different translations. This, this phrase is repeated throughout Genesis, maybe even 10 or 12 times. I'm not sure I remember exactly how many, but it, it, each new section is introduced that way. So you have, this is the, this is the account of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. And then it talks about Jacob and his line and it does that over and over. And so this is kind of the, the first main section. So I would treat Genesis one and the creation is kind of a prologue to the book really. And then this is really the beginning of the unfolding of the seed line throughout the Bible, starting right here in Genesis chapter two. So we're really zooming in specifically on Adam and Eve, what happened to them and what follows from that to bring about the next in their line. So why is there a conflict then? Is, is it, is it because the, in Genesis two, you're getting into that detail and that detail of Adam and Eve's creation is not mentioned in Genesis one. Is that why you're saying there's two separate or some people claim that there's two separate creation stories there? Yeah, I think 
there's the, the Christians who see these two stories and go, why is it split out this way? And kind of an innocent question, you know, what's the, you know, what's the reasoning for this? And I think the reasoning is, is because, because of the structure of Genesis and the way God is going to, or the way the author of Genesis is going to frame up how the line is formed and, and, and understanding where Adam and Eve came from is really significant to that. There's a whole nother set of people who are asking that's a similar question. Why is there this thing in Genesis two and this thing in Genesis one, and they kind of cover the same territory, but in different ways. And what they're saying is, well, the, this proves that the Bible is in error or something like that, because we have this repeated content that's told told differently, or even, even they would say in conflict that Genesis two is in disagreement with Genesis one, which doesn't appear to me to have any merit. They're just, they're approaching the subject from different angles and Genesis two has more specificity, but not, not any, any kind of content that would disagree with Genesis one. When you say this is the beginning of a line, do you mean the line that eventually proceeds all of the way to Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. Specifically in Genesis, it goes up through, um, through Jacob and his sons and on through Joseph and his sons even. So it's introducing first the people of Israel, you know, so this is the beginning of the line that leads up to Jacob, who is also Israel, but then carried out throughout scripture that, that leads all the way down to Christ. We'll go ahead and bring in our special guest today, returning guest for episode three, uh, Tim Nichols, co-author of the He Shall Crush His Head curriculum with Joe Anderson. Tim, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. It's been so long. Well, Tim is, first of all, Tim is here, not just as the author of curriculum, but specifically Tim is putting on the hat as a massage therapist and martial arts instructor and healing prayer guy, anointing with oils guy. Um, because we're going to get into in a few minutes here, we don't want to jump the gun because once we start on dust and breath, we're, we're probably not going to be able to stop, but that's kind of why we brought Tim in is because he's got some expertise in the, on the physical side of things. Tell us a little bit about your history of physical body work, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I was an incredibly clumsy kid growing up. And that became something that I worked on quite a bit. I ended up doing martial arts, and that was part of the way for me to, through doing more disciplined movement, recover some coordination. I'm kind of built for a teacher and had given up on teaching anything related to movement because I was just so clumsy and was absolutely shocked when one of my teachers said, I want you to come back and train as an instructor. And I I didn't think I could do it. Um, Turns out I could, and... I spent a lot of time in the martial arts and eventually began to feel like, you know, here I am a pastor and I know all this stuff about the body and how it works and what I can do with it is break people. That, that it seems like there should be something more to that for a follower of Jesus. And so I began to look for, look in a healing direction. I was hoping, I was thinking some kind of movement therapy and it just got closed every single door and eventually moved me into massage therapy and just... Physicality, what the Bible has to say about us as physical beings has been fascinating to me for a really long time. Well, we're glad to have you today, Tim, and especially with that background in massage therapy, etc. Should we jump in here to Eden? Absolutely. So in Genesis chapter two, we see Adam has 
already been created and now he's been placed into a physical environment and that environment is Eden. And most people who may not have studied the text very closely may think that Eden just refers to the garden itself, but actually Eden is a larger place. I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the larger Eden, Eden being not just the garden, but the entire area and what's the, the physical location and the rivers that flow out of it. Yeah. The guard, so the garden of people talk about the garden of Eden as though the, the, the garden is actually named Eden. Um, but the way it's talked about in Genesis chapter two is that the Lord God had planted a garden in the East in Eden. So on the East side of Eden is how we might say that um, in contemporary parlance, God formed this, this garden and then he filled it with life and filled it with Adam and Eve, put a man in there to tend it. And it became a place of, first of all, a place of worship. In addition to a place of work, it's a place where Adam and Eve would worship the Lord. And later on the tabernacle would become the same kind of a place. And this is where, when later on it says that God, you know, God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. Um, So he's coming down into the garden to walk with them. It's where they meet God. Yeah. So the garden was a tabernacle and Adam was put there as a priest. And so Adam was given the, given the duties to tend and keep or cultivate and guard. We might, we might say to tend or cultivate means to take care of the plants that are in the garden, make sure it's beautiful and prosperous and full. And then to guard would mean to protect, protect the garden from the enemy to protect the garden from anything bad happening there. So there's a double role there. And then those, those roles are repeated in Leviticus that the, the priests are supposed to tend and to keep the garden. So this is the introduction. And we would, I just want to hit this real quickly. This is the introduction of the priestly role. And throughout the old Testament, we have the whole old Testament is kind of framed up in priest, king and prophet. So the first five books of the priestly books, including Leviticus and Deuteronomy and this is laying out kind of the the priestly duty of man in general. And then we have the king books, the, the books of wisdom and the history of the kings of Israel. And then we have the prophet, the, the books of prophecy. Um, and so we have these three roles, which are ultimately filled in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate priest, king and prophet that we're called to, to imitate. So we just want to get those on the table because we're going to bring those up a lot as we go through the curriculum, as we go through the Bible. So Adam, we have Adam, our first priest, but let's back up a little bit to the creation of Adam himself. In Genesis uh, chapter two, verse seven, it says the Lord God formed the man who of course is Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So we have just a, essentially a sentence there about the creation of the first man, but there's so much in that sentence. Um, and I think today, just as, as someone who uh, was not familiar with Genesis for so many years, I only can think of that in terms of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know that man has been created from dust and to dust we return. Even as someone who hasn't really read the Bible, you know about that. Mm-hmm. But it's the second part of this that is um, more unfamiliar to me and more interesting in the image of God breathing life into this dust. Speak into this a little bit about the way that man is created, both physically from the dust, but also the the breath of life that is breathed into him to to animate him. 
it's the same forming and filling motif we've seen throughout the creation story. God takes, literally takes dirt, makes a sculpture, makes an Adam sculpture, and then breathes into it. And Adam comes alive. Adam becomes, in, in King James speak, a living soul or a living being. You sort of work backwards. You start with, okay, well, what is a living being? What is this? You know, I'm looking at Ryan Bramlett. What, what is Ryan Bramlett? Well, he's, he's a living in biblical terms, in creational terms. You're a living being, a living soul. What's that? That is dust and breath. What's, what's meant by dust? Well, the dust is the physical stuff, the literal dirt that returns to dirt when you're done with it. And what's breath? Breath is the spirit, the immaterial part of you that returns to God who gave it when, again, when, when you die. Um, I, I'm curious, Tim, just to interrupt you here. Sure. Do, do you see in this passage any inherent weight given to one or the other of those two things? Uh, because in our culture, uh, we give so much more weight to the the breath or what is referred to colloquially as the soul. And our body is, is so often just referred to as a, a shell, just a, just a dust and dirt and, and what have you. But in this passage, I don't, at least I don't see any particular uh, weight given to either one, but I wanted to get your read on that. No, I agree with you. There's, there's equal um, ultimacy to both both of those components. I think it's interesting, Ryan, that you said in our culture, we put a lot of emphasis on the, the soul and the, the shell is just, is just there. I think you're, you're right on that from one angle, but if you start talking to, you know, a biologist, a materialist kind of biologist, they would say that there is no soul. All there is, is the material you and what you experience as your spirit or your soul is just a, a phantom of a, a firing of neurons, chemicals moving around inside your brain. It's just, it's totally phantom. It's not really there. All you are is the material. And then you have this, this hunger for meaning and purpose. And, and so the, the material is kind of, it's just material and it's denigrated. So you have this emphasis on in other sectors of our society, kind of the, a hunger and a thirst for something beyond just the material. And so you get this emphasis on the spirit and soul, but it seems to me like it's, it's so broken up. You don't find anybody who has like an emphasis on both other than hopefully Christians. The Christian perspective is that these really are both equally ultimate. And this is a running theme in Christianity. When we talk about the Trinity, well, is, is the unity more important than the plurality or is the plurality more important than the unity? And you can get, you know, beginning Bible students tied up in knots over this kind of thing. But the answer is neither. They're both equally ultimate. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting here is I remember in seminary, we would have anthropology class. And the big question was, is man, is man made up of three things, body, soul, and spirit, or just two? Um, and what, and is it body and then spirit and soul are kind of just different ways of, of saying the same thing. When I came across Genesis two and kind of took it straight up, no mixer, just, you know, Genesis two, seven straight, it will body, soul, and spirit all come up here. Dust of the breath. God breathes in the breath of life and man became a living soul. So you have body, spirit, but body plus spirit becomes soul. So the soul is a third thing, but that third thing is com- 
comprised or composed of whichever the sum word of is, the parts, the sum of the parts. Right. Um, and that's the, really the, the important thing. The soul is the, the thing that's, that is then talked about as the thing that what, what dies when you get killed, where well, your soul dies, your body goes into the ground and your spirit returns to God. But the soul is, is gone once you physically die. And when you're resurrected, the two are brought back together. So this, the body is resurrected and reunited with your spirit. And that was interesting to me. I had not heard this before that uh, in Genesis 2, 7, where it says the man became a living being and the Hebrew word, the word behind living being is the closest word Hebrew has for a soul. So as you say, the soul is the body and the spirit combined. And that to me is, uh, um, uh, is shocking or I'd never heard that described before. You would never talk to somebody on the street and ask them what a soul was and have them say, Oh, it's your body and your spirit combined. The average person would never think that the soul has a, a physical element at all. So to find out that straight from the Bible, we have body and soul combined that also I think gives, um, or shine some light for me on the idea of us being resurrected in new bodies, as you say, because again, you wouldn't think that after you die, you would have a body return to you. You would only think of your soul being in heaven or whatever ideas you have about what it means to be in heaven. You wouldn't necessarily associate that with having a new body. But of course, when Jesus comes back, when he's resurrected, if he has a resurrected body as well. And I think this goes back to Genesis two, seven. You're right. If you go like you take your microphone, Jay Leno style down on the street and start talking to people, no one is going to about what a soul is. No one is going to come up with a physical component. But all the stuff that we think of as soul stuff, the things that we would talk about as as matters of the soul have a physical component to them. Yeah, sometimes we act like they're completely separate from each other. Your your spirit and your physical body are are completely separate. But it's completely untrue when you think about physical reactions that we all have to emotions and things that we're feeling manifest themselves physically uh, all the time. Yeah, and there's a running debate in psychology about whether the emotion, whether, whether the physical sensation precedes or follows the emotion. You know, you stand up in the kitchen and the cupboard door was open above your head and you whack your head on the cupboard door as you get up um, and you get really mad. Are you angry because you got hurt and your body is responding to the anger? Are you, you know, is your body simply responding to the physical stimulus and, you know, blood rushes to your head and all that stuff and you interpret that as anger? The thing that I find really interesting is the fact that it's all enmeshed so tightly that it's possible to have a you know, like a running debate for decades about this. And from a biblical perspective, we, we're talking about the whole person. We're talking about the dust and the breath being intertwined so tightly that you separating them is the definition of death. We like to talk as Christians about saving people's souls and the New Testament uses that terminology. And what does that mean for us when we go, you know, we, we make an effort to love our neighbors um, and we're, are we trying to save their soul or their their, their embodied spirits. Um, there's, so there's, there's actually a, an earthly component to salvation. That's really important is when we go out and bless people by serving them, meeting their needs, we're putting on the table here that we're not just 
giving them a spiritual salvation. We're offering a redemption that encompasses both their body and their spirit. And and again, this is another place where you see Christians emphasizing one or the other, you know, well, we, we want to just go out and serve people and, and love them and make sure they have a good life here on earth. And then you see other Christians saying, no, we wanted to bring Bibles to every child in Africa. We don't need to worry about making sure they get enough food to eat. You know, you got, you got kind of these weird emphases going in different directions, but we're called to save people's souls, their embodied spirits, which means both a spiritual salvation and a physical salvation are what, what that's what it means when the kingdom comes. Yes, I guess if you're if you're embracing the idea of of um, saving someone, you can't just you can't just zoom in on the spiritual component. If you if you believe that both the physical and the spirit carry equal weight, then you can't just be someone who's who's a Christian in their brain, but is not is not living it out in their physical body. Is not using their body to serve others. They're just uh, they're focusing only on what's going on between the ears, so to speak. And this is this is really easy to see when you step away from the ideology, um, because the people that you actually really care about, you get deeply invested in their physical salvation. As a physical therapist, of course, you would say that. <laughs> I would, but like, watch any mother when her kid trips on the sidewalk and skins their knee. You know, she may be, you know, a hardcore fundamentalist supporter of missions that don't do anything physical. They just take the gospel into places. But when her kid skins her knee, she runs over and picks the kid up and dusts him off and washes off the grit from the. Why? Because she loves the whole person and the instinct carries her where where her ideology would perhaps say that this is not. It doesn't really matter if there was a spiritual lesson to be learned. Then, you know, that's that's much more important. Um Tim, I have a, a question about your experience in, in massage school. Yeah. You're there with some Christians and then a lot of non-Christians coming from a variety of backgrounds, but these people are all, all coming because they feel like there's some power in physical, physical touch. What are they thinking? What's, and what was your kind of response to that? Yeah, I, w- I would say the pre that predominantly it was a, for most of us, it was a pragmatic thing Mm -hmm. of a, you know, we have experienced that this really helps. Um, we had, I mean, there's a few people in, in massage school, you do have people who are coming in who are just like, well, you know, it's a career. The hourly is not bad and it's only a year of school. (laughs) It beats the pants off going to, you know, getting a four year liberal arts degree so I can work at Starbucks, Um, which it does. (laughs) But I, I guess this is characteristic of our culture at this point. Most people sort of become reflective about it after the fact. Um, Kind of, you kind of come in with a, well, this really helped me. I'd like to share it with other people because it's, because it's really amazing. Um, and then you, you know, as you begin to gain more experience, you be, you start to go, wait, okay. So what just happened? So there you're taking Genesis two seven as kind of a, a starting point. We know that when you're performing a massage, you're, you're not, you can't possibly just massage a body. You're, you're massaging an, an embodied spirit. What? So they eventually, the people who are coming into massage school go, do they figure that out? Like, I'm not just touching a body. There's something deeper there. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of my classmates were there already. Okay. Um, that this is, that this is work with the whole person. 
but yeah, you become, I mean, coming in from my angle, I was coming in with a Genesis 2-7 angle on it to start with. I made an agreement with God at the beginning that I was not going to, that I was going to pay attention, um, that I was not going to take whatever weird things happened and just ignore, you know, just ignore them. I know a lot of Christians who, when I get to talking with them about various weird things that happen, have a story to tell. They have an ex- they had an experience like that once, and they keep it in their mental filing cabinet in the very bottom drawer at the very back, filed under weird things that God did that I don't want to think about. And you'll you'll never hear that story unless you you know unless you start having that kind of conversation with them. Um, my agreement with God was that I was not going to be one of those people as, as I am interacting with other people and, you know, at a, at the level of a whole person, I, I was working with one particular client one day, one of my classmates, and I'm about halfway through a massage and all of a sudden I can't breathe for nuts. Uh, my diaphragm just locks up and I can't, I just can't get it together. And it finally dawns on me what, what, um, you know, maybe this isn't mine. And so I, I stopped and I said, I'm just curious, do you like, do you need some diaphragm work? How's your breathing been? And she said, you know, actually I do, but I'd already asked you for a couple of other things and I didn't think we'd have time. So obviously we did the diaphragm work. As soon as I realized it was maybe not mine and asked, I had no more trouble. I don't know how to explain that experience. This is one of those things that you file under the weird things in the weird things file and don't look at it again. Um, and what I did instead was go, okay, so, you know, what is that? Theologically, what is that? So, Joe, we t- it's obvious from, from talking to Tim how important this perspective coming from Genesis 2-7 is and how important the idea of dust and breath forming a combined soul is to the curriculum and how just how important this passage is. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about your, from your own life, how has this passage or the thought of, of the soul as a combination of body and spirit, how did that idea resonate in your personal life? Well, um, Tim and I have have talked about this before. Tim's kind of has a call towards physical, like helping people with heal, physical healing, that kind of thing. I have a call towards reclaiming physical territory in the world. So, um, my ministry wise, my big emphasis is neighboring the city, the city of Inglewood, the city where I live, um, and figuring out ways to kind of bring, bring this theology to life in that context. I think one of the big ways we've, we've seen that, and you've been a part of this, Ryan, is just when we're going to minister to people, we, we want there to be a, a physical component, a service, not, not particularly a physical body component, but a service component where we're doing something for the whole person. We're not just preaching the gospel in, in the sense of just laying out the words of truth for them. We want to, we want to, we want to be there and present for all their physical needs, whether it's bringing food or helping cut down a tree or paint a house. We've done, we've done numerous of these kind of projects and it often gives you an opening into their life in a way that just, just coming with the words of the gospel don't. Why do you think that aspect of, of pastoring is neglected? 
Well, I think um, I, to put it in a historical context, you could go back to kind of the revivalism of the 19th century and the the big thing being a spiritual, what people needed was a spiritual awakening. And along with that came kind of a, a, a denigrating of, of the physical and also a, a, there was kind of a theology of salvation that was just about heaven and hell. And so you have, where are you going to go when you die is the big, is the big question. And the way you address that is getting somebody into a relationship with Jesus, introducing them to the gospel. And that was a big thing in, in the ni- 19th century revivalism. And then there was the, the people kind of forgot about the, the concept of the kingdom coming to earth, that Jesus was one day going to, he's going to come back and he's going to rule on this earth and set everything to rights. There's actually a salvation that involves the whole physical world. And ultimately the new heavens and the new earth is a rec- recreation of the physical world so that, we, so that we can be reunited with our bodies and live that way forever. But there was a theology that, that came out of, out of the, the, the revivalistic kind of approach to evangelism that totally forgot about that. And even all the way up through when I was growing up, I never, I never knew that Jesus, other than Jesus is going to come back and kind of pull us out and bring us to heaven. You know, if we're still alive, when the end of the world comes is Jesus is going to physically take us out of this world. But I didn't know until I was, I don't know, probably in my twenties that, that salvation involved the whole world and the whole person. When Jesus says to love your neighbor, that's his command to us. And I, I think some people just interpret that as loving your neighbor means to introduce your unchurched neighbor to Jesus Christ and get his soul saved. It doesn't necessarily mean to trim his trees and get rid of his trash. <laughs> that is uh, in, in uh, violation of Inglewood city code. Um, so that I think is maybe what you're speaking to in terms of the reaching out to people who, who have spiritual needs or what we perceive as spiritual needs, but we're not addressing the, the physical, the physical needs. Uh, and that's, and that's what you are focusing on. Mm-hmm. Well, this got sharpened, just continuing with the history, this got sharpened in the early part of the 20th century in the battles, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, and I mean, I remember hearing people talk about this, um, that on the modernist side of the fence, when you have given up, you know, all of the miracles, including the resurrection, when you have essentially given up, you know, the historical core of Christianity and you're trying to, but you, but you're trying to keep a sort of Christianish feel to your life. What do you, what do you have? What do you focus on? Well, you help the poor, you like the, those ethical things, the very physical things are the things that you focus on. Um, and that's not bad, but it's missing something. What happened is, you know, what, what often happens is in any kind of theological argument is that there's a tendency when you see someone doing, doing something bad or something subpar is to try to make yourself as much unlike them as possible, unfortunately, including all their good things. Um, so the fundamentalist response to the modernist social gospel that, you know, Jesus was all about care of the poor and the sick and so on and so forth. The fundamentalist response was Jesus was all about, you know, substitutionary atonement and the death and resurrection and saving, you know, saving your spirit into heaven. 
to the point that they would become suspicious of a missionary who spent a lot of time like feeding the poor. Uh, like, is, is, is he drifting into that social gospel business or does he still really believe that the spiritual things are important? Um, and there was a, there was real social, like, I remember growing up hearing people talk about, talk about this, talk about not getting distracted by the physical needs, um, which are temporary, but the spiritual needs are eternal. Um, and there, there being a real suspicion around that kind of, that kind of work. And it's just. The, the people who remember the fight are all dead. And in the last 20 years or so, it's not as big of a deal. And Orthodox Christians have always been interested in this kind of thing. But there was a there was a while where if you got heavily involved in caring for physical needs, um, Orthodox Christians would be suspicious that perhaps you were going soft on, on the spiritual needs. Ryan, I'd like to just ask, I think, I think this may just be a good time for you to tell your story of how you came to faith and we don't go out and do ministry for physical needs just to help, you know, just to help people out with their physical needs. Though, if, if that's all that comes of it, then that's great. But we're hoping that, that we're making a spiritual connection as well. And we're intentional to do that. And I know that as an unbeliever, you were really attracted to this. Can you just tell a little bit about the story of how you came to faith? Sure. I, well, my involvement with uh, your neighboring group and just a background for our listeners is that Joe runs a, a neighboring group through our church, Wellspring Church in Inglewood, that as part of its purpose goes out and, and does service projects for members of the community who need things done, whether it be trimming trees or removing trash or anything else. And I knew and and my neighbor across the street was involved in that group and I was not a, um, not a member of any church community and, and not a believer in any, any way, but I was attracted to the idea of neighbors helping neighbors and, and what would motivate them to do that. I, I was, I've lived in Denver for a long time and had always lived in neighborhoods where neighbors did not speak to each other categorically, <laughs> <laughs> didn't really even say hello to each other. I had lived in, in four or five different neighborhoods in Denver, so it wasn't just one, but it was something that I had seen across the city. So um, I was just fascinated with the idea of neighbors that actually wanted to go out and do things for, for other neighbors with no expectation of anything in return, uh, maybe a batch of cookies if you're lucky. Um, but that's very, to me, was very attractive to see people wanting to help other people. And it wasn't until later that I realized that there was a, a, a Christian element to the neighboring group or that it had any sort of, um, Christian slant to it. And so, you know, without going into uh, too much detail here, um, I think I just saw the spirit of God moving through people that wanted to do good for other people in solely to help them, loving their neighbors simply for the sake of loving their neighbors. And, it's a term that I throw around a phrase, love your neighbor that I throw around now, like it's nothing. But again, at the time, three years ago, the idea that you would love your neighbor was certainly an idea on paper and not something to be lived out. 
And so it was through joining the neighboring group that I began to develop some uh, questions, spiritual questions, and why are th- why are the Christians focused on loving their neighbors when all of the other unbelievers I know have no interest in helping their neighbors in any way? And that is um, what eventually, long story short, eventually led me to to explore God's role in each of us, how God was working as a force of good in every living person and wanting to be closer to that and be a part of that is what led me to faith. So it's not theory. This is not just a theoretical discussion. You know, when we go out and, and serve people, we've, you know, Ryan's not, you know, Ryan's become a good friend now and came to faith. And I'm not sure it would have worked out that way. Had we just knocked on your door and said, Hey, would you want to come to a Bible study? Maybe, I don't know, but <laughs> it doesn't seem likely. No, because i and I think you would see this in a lot of places where you would try to go in and convert people. They want to see the faith in action. They don't want to just see it on paper or bet- again, to use the phrase between the ears, people want to see that Christians are actually living their lives day to day different from non-Christians. And it's not just a, okay, I believe this and now I'm a Christian and you're not because you don't believe it. It goes beyond belief. It goes beyond faith. To my experience, mm-hmm. it speaks also to how you are living your life day to day and how you're treating the people that you come in contact with every single day. So, yes, I I would say that that when I'm looking at Genesis 2, 7 and I'm seeing this physical component weighed against the spiritual component. It's kind of a metaphor for almost everything in Christianity from converting other people to, to, well, from creation, of course, is where it starts, but also, um, it's the, uh, the concept is very broad and can be applied to almost anything. It seems the metaphor reminds me when Tim and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, suddenly the song dust in the wind came into my mind by Kansas, where of by course Kansas, you're from. Where I'm from. Yeah. Um, all we are is dust in the wind. And, and, um, as we discussed that, it, it became apparent that what, what the dust in the wind is, is dust and breath minus any forming. And so there's nothing, if there's no forming, there's nothing to fill. And that's where you get, you get nihilism. It's, just, it's all meaningless. If you don't have a, creator actually providing a context for dust and breath to live in, in unity, to live in harmony, to get to, to be formed into something meaningful. And, and it just all becomes chaos and life becomes meaningless. So I think the metaphor, I love the metaphor of dust and breath because it extends into, into, extends into philosophy and into every area of life, um, evangelism and physical healing and on it, it just goes everywhere. So I don't think Kansas, the band would say, oh yes, we're flag wavers for nihilism. But it's so funny that when you describe what that song is saying, it really is a sense of just hopelessness or, or just meaninglessness that, It doesn't matter what we do. It's all just dust in the wind because there is no, um, there's no intention from a creator in that, in the, in the context of that song, there's Mm -hmm. no, (laughs) there's no greater meaning there. Um, and it became such a big hit. How do you explain that? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's what we were going through at the time whenever that song came out. Well, and you have people applying that in a couple of different directions. You have the ones that get really, really depressed because everything is meaningless. And you have the ones who sort of, in the first Corinthians 15 kind of way, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. 
um, who, who choose a direction because they feel themselves free to choose any direction at all and just, and just roll with it because there really isn't a purpose. They just pick something and go with it and it allows them to feel like their life has meaning. And it's, it's one of, one of the great lies of our time is that you can, is that you can simply choose the meaning that your life has and that that's somehow going to be satisfying to you. Mm. Um, and I think, I think people run into a wall there. There are a lot of people who choose to choose a direction and I'm going for this. And you see it a lot with people who are successful at getting what they aimed at and discovering that it doesn't like they, they have their day in the sun. They you know, won the gold medal, you know, got the corner office, whatever the thing was. Well, that certainly sounds familiar from my life, from the place I had reached before coming to faith as not necessarily as the gold medal winner. We, we all know that, but as someone who had achieved a certain level of materialistic uh, ends and was satisfied with everything I had materially, but found other corners of the room to be shockingly empty. So, well, you know, Joe and Tim had warned me before we started recording this podcast that once we started talking about dust and breath, it could go on all day and all night. But I'm afraid that is the the end of our time today for this episode. We can turn off the mics and keep talking, right? Oh, yeah. the, the conversation will continue, but it won't be won't be on record. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us again on our podcast. My pleasure. And we will step aside for now, but we will see you in the next episode and we'll get into the creation of Eve. So things are going to get interesting. Yep, and we'll dig in deeper next time. Thank you for listening. Please join us at headwatersresources.org to download our podcast and check out our entire line of books for you and your family. Our podcast was created and produced by Joe Anderson and Ryan Bramley. Our theme music was written by Pacifica. Our narrator is Tim Nichols. In our next episode, we take one more step through the Bible. For Ryan and Joe, this is your official announcer, McKenna Dunch, saying goodbye for now. And may the peace of the Lord be with you.